Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Joining us now, Bob Irving, the voice of the Bombers. Bob, my voice is already, what are we, 35 minutes into the show. My voice is already cracking. I've been off for a week. I'm not used to uh, to talking so much. Well, you got to build those muscles back up then, don't you, Hal? Those, uh, well, yeah, and you are going to be muscles. building You're going to be building the muscles, the voice muscles <laughs> back up tonight, too, as the uh, yeah. sports show goes back to two hours, and you'll be joining Christian O'Mill from 7 to 8. I'm sure you're excited about that. Yeah, and you know what we talked about, Hal, and we decided was that uh, typically at this time of the year, the Bombers would be in training camp, and we'd be talking a lot about them anyway on the sports show. So we said, hey, let's devote the first hour for the next couple of weeks, the 7 mm-hmm. to 8 hour, to strictly Bomber talk. So that's what we'll do each night. And I'll co-host with Christian. We're going to have Mike O'Shea, Brad Foddy, the equipment manager, and Lucky Whitehead among our guests tonight. And we want to kind of go behind the scenes a little bit, too, here, Hal, and talk to people like Brad and and others who are involved with the Bomber organization, but maybe not uh, as out front as as many as the players and coaches would be, just to get an idea of how everybody's dealing with the pandemic and their thoughts on whether or not there might be a season. Yeah, I like that. And over the long weekend, I caught some of the special Bomber Encore programming, which was great. I think that, I think that's got fans in the mood for football. Yeah, we've had quite a bit of nice feedback on that, Hal, and that was Kelly Moore's idea to replay those final four games of 2019, the final regular season game, and then the the two uh, playoff games, and then our post-game show from the Grey Cup. And I listened to a bit of that last night. Well, I listened to a bit of all of it, but the bit of that last night, and boy, that brought, yeah. that brought back so many great memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Christian and Greg Mackling were on the field talking to players, and everybody was so excited and emotional. The fans were just over the top. It was such a wonderful memory, and it's only just a few months ago now. So, yeah, it was good uh, good to do that, and we'll continue along that vein here for the next couple of weeks from 7 to 8. Mm-hmm. Now, forgive me, because I've been out of the loop for over a week, and I just heard a mention of it quickly on the start this morning with Macklin, McGarry, and McNabb. What has Lucky Whitehead done? What are you, what are you guys going to be talking to him about tonight? <laughs> so part of his off-season training, remember Lucky at the end of last year wasn't playing. He was still with the team, but he wasn't right. on the active roster. He'd kind of fallen out of favor a little bit. Uh, so he's been training extra hard this offseason because he had the fans really excited at the beginning of the year with his tremendous speed and his explosion and his big playability. One of the things he's done while training in Florida is he uh, hooked up this uh, contraption to a Mack truck and he pulled the you know the semi the you know the the part of the semi that pulls the rest of it. He pulled yeah. it down a, a road. And so I want to ask him about that. I want to say, Lucky, why would anybody do that? And yeah. uh, you know, how does that <laughs> how does that improve your speed or whatever? So we'll have some fun with Lucky on that one. Good. I'll be listening to that. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I am in the mood for at least some football talk. You must be in the mood for it too, Bob, because I know how much you love doing the Bombers uh, every year. You must be. It must be weird for you too, eh? You know, it's funny, my wife and I were talking about this past weekend. The bomber training camp was supposed to open on on Sunday, main training camp, and that would have kind of blown our long weekend out of the water in terms of having as much time as we'd like to just relax and enjoy the nice weather. But we're used to that, right? And so, yeah, as much as it was great to have this long weekend and the awesome weather that we have, uh, I, I missed going over to IG 
field mm-hmm. and uh, watching the players go through their practices and sorting out who's going to win this spot and win that spot. Sure, I miss it for sure. And I, you know, after three or four days of training camp, I've said this many times, you get a little bored with it because it's a repetition. It's over and over. And then you want to you want to see them play a game. But uh, am I missing that whole milieu that football is? You bet I am, Hal. Sure. No, I knew the answer would be yes when I asked the question, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Hey, um, so sports, CFL, um, NHL, you know, we're starting to hear more and more talk of things getting back at it in one form or another. What have you heard um, that surprises you or that you're interested in seeing where it's going to go? Uh, are we Any updates for us in the CFL that you can share with us? Any thoughts since the last time we chatted a couple weeks ago, Bob? Well, all I know, Hal, is that talks continue on a daily, I would say almost an hourly basis in all these leagues as they try to sort of carve out some sort of route whereby they can get back playing games again. I know in the CFL uh, they're talking about any number of different schedules, uh, eight games, nine games, ten or eleven, if they can get going before the start of September. They want to play some games at least. They've also started talking about these playing games in these hub cities that the NHL is talking about where they'd bring all the playoff teams in. I'm talking about the NHL now and play all the games without fans in two or three select cities where, you know, there was lots of hotel space and they could isolate players and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and baseball, uh, they're fighting over money. Of course, always the owners and the players down there, they'd yep. like to get a season started again without fans. And this is, the, I think, the specter surrounding all this that everybody kind of wonders about is how do you make this work without fans? And I know the television money and the corporate sponsorship money for the NHL would make it worthwhile to play without fans. I don't know how that would work in the CFL. That would be, I think, a bit of a challenge. So, you know, I don't know how it's all going to happen. I'll say this about the NHL, though, Hal. They they say they'll need a three-week training camp before they could start right into the playoffs. So what's three weeks from now? That's about the 7th or 8th of June, right? And so they'd be playing into August, Stanley Cup playoffs through July and into August. And I know the NHL is desperate. They're desperate to finish the season and award the Stanley Cup, but that will be a, a world unlike any we have ever imagined, as much as the mm-hmm. Stanley Cup final usually goes into June. But August? I don't know. I really don't. Uh, so uh, this is all so much up in the air. All I can say about it is all these leagues want to play, and as soon as they can organize it in a way where they get clearance from the health authorities uh, to do it in a way that they think can can make it work, that I think they're going to go ahead and try it. The la- the worst thing that could happen is you'd start the playoffs in the NHL, some guy tests positive for COVID, and then it spreads to some other players. Now what do you do? Do you have to shut the whole thing down? You know, there's so many things we just don't have answers to right now. I think the problem here, Bob, is that fans are desperate for games. Oh, yeah. uh, players, coaches, and teams are desperate for games. And, you know, and you almost, and I'm not an expert, I don't even play a doctor on radio, but I'll just say this, I think until we get a vaccine or some kind of serious treatment for this um, virus, I can't imagine uh, sports venues being filled with thousands of people like we've seen in the past. And so with that not in the very near future, you, you almost feel like you have to try and move ahead in one form or another, don't you? Yeah, that's right. I, I think uh, that's a concern, certainly. for It's one thing for health officials to say, all right, it's okay now for fans to go to the games, 
But how many of those fans will be comfortable doing that, depending on, again, where everything stands when that moment arises? So, yeah, I think that's one of the sort of the, the pushes behind these leagues saying, look, if we have to play without fans, we're prepared to do that because we understand the problems we would have in putting fans into the buildings. I was thinking about Investors Group Field, Hal. You could, there's 33,000 seats there. You could socially distance uh, probably, what, a third, uh, maybe 13,000, 14,000. Mm-hmm. But how do you, when they go to the bathroom and go for a hot dog and a, and a hamburger, mm-hmm. how do you do that? And so, I don't know. I don't have the answers. It's uh, it's such a new world we're all in and, and moving through that nobody knows how this is all going to play out. But again, I go back to what I said earlier. The league's want desperately to put their product back in front of the public, the consumer public, because there's an appetite out there now, Hal. There's an appetite for sport, I think, not necessarily going to the game, but just seeing it, that is, is as high as I've ever seen it. Yeah, well, and not just a demand, Bob, I think a real pent-up demand, right? I mean, like, people are just, they're chomping at the bit to watch something other than axe-throwing, and yeah. you know these other uh, crazy things that are are filling the the spaces on on TV and uh, and you know in the newspapers and on radio too. But listen, the good news is you, sir, will be on CJOB tonight talking football with Christian O'Mel seven to eight o'clock as the sports show goes back to two hours seven to nine. Looking forward to it, pal. Tonight and every night this week and next from seven to eight. Yeah, all, and I'm looking forward to it too. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Stay safe. Bob Irving, the voice of the Bombers. And again, tonight, 7 to 8. And for at least the next couple of weeks, Bob will be with Christian O'Mell as the CJOB Sports Show goes back to its regular two-hour format. The 7 to 8 o'clock hour will be all Bombers all the time. Joining us now in the studio, back at CJOB in the Polo Park area, Richard Cluche, co-host of The News. Uh, Richard, you're going to be working with TFJ, Tristan Field-Jones, this afternoon. Is Julie? Uh, when's Julie uh, coming back? Off for a couple of days? Yeah, or? she's off for a couple of days. And, Hal, great to have you back, by the way. Yeah. I hope your R&R was, uh, was okay. But you were referring earlier to that morning news meeting, and I think that uh, the weird situation that we're in now, you said you'd rather be working than taking time yes. off, and I get that completely. Uh, Julie has an extended long weekend. She is off uh, today and tomorrow, and then I'm taking Thursday and Friday off and looking forward to at least four days of cycling. Yeah, sure. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, cycling, possibly uh, over the Arlington Bridge into the Selkirk area there um, in North uh, Winnipeg. And I had not heard about this until you mentioned it in the news meeting this morning. What's the idea here? This plan's being bantied about. It is being bantied about. And uh, in pre-COVID times, what I like to do is get together with various people within various circles of the city of Winnipeg. Some are decision makers, some are thinkers, some are ones that are just neighborhood activists and uh, try to get out for breakfasts. Usually it's a one-on-one, but sometimes it's uh, a couple, three people gathered together. And during one of these sessions back in January, this whole idea came up. And I said, very much like what you would say to this, it'll never fly. Yeah. And then I started doing a little bit more research on it and asking more and more people. And this is the way it's been presented to me. Winnipeg is a classic city that we build infrastructure to get people from one place to another. 
to get through places because we don't want to be there. And the classic example of this is Portage in Maine. The whole idea of bringing pedestrians back to Portage in Maine is that to a commuting audience, which is a good chunk of our audience here at 680 CJOB, we spend a lot of time pre-post-COVID in our cars. Right. And Portage in Maine is an intersection we want to get through. We don't want to hang out there. We don't want to be waiting there any longer. So why should I care whether or not pedestrians go through or there or not? And apply that logic to Arlington Bridge. Engineers from the city of Winnipeg, from people that are interested in building stuff, would say, we lose one bridge, we have to replace it with another. And that's been the argument now for the past 15, 20 years. We've been talking about replacing this bridge now for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it's never at the front of the list. It's always on the list. So in talking with people, they said, you know what? Do we really need a replacement for the Arlington Bridge? Well, the great solve to this would be the relocation of the CP yards, but that's a $2 billion answer that's not going to happen anytime soon. So why not, given the fact that you have McPhillips and Salter on either side, why not expand those roadways? Because those are the roadways that get people to and from. And Arlington is only one lane north, one lane south. You could replace it with two lanes going each way, but at what cost? Four or five hundred million dollars, if not more, given the fact that you're trying to get over top of the yards. So the idea was presented, and we're going to have some people on after the 530 News who are interested in talking about that, and we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Here, here's my here's my only issue with this. I I get it, and I don't think it's a bad idea. A couple of things, and and some of these ideas are coming from listeners uh, via text too at two zero four seven eighty sixty eight sixty eight. For example, Doug just says, "Can you imagine riding a bike up and then down that bridge? Crash!" <laughs> Exclamation mark! All ca- uh, marks all capital letters. Good point. Now, Les makes, and I my heart breaks when I drive down Selkirk because, as I said earlier. That was Winnipeg's Main Street back in the day, right? And and it, it bothers me to see all these boarded-up buildings. And Les texted in and said, Hal, you really have to slow down as you go down Selkirk because there is a, a morphing happening there. It, more is happening there, and this would certainly add to that. I just think it's going to be a hard sell because people are going to go, I'm going to ride my bike up Arlington Bridge, down Arlington Bridge, into that area the way it is now. I understand down the road, the area may improve, but right now, I don't think people can see it. Sure, and I agree with you. But instead of spending the $400 million on a new bridge, it's been suggested right. to me you spend some of that money on improving the infrastructure at McPhillips and in Salter, and then the rest hmm. on the north end. And that along that bridge, and you know, maybe you have to make some, uh, you know, some, some ramping yeah. differences, but mm-hmm. very much like the High Line in New York, suddenly... You have vendors that are there during the day, that suddenly you have street performers that are there during the day, uh, that suddenly you have pop-up shops that can go there from time to time. And the whole idea of making places a whole lot safer is getting a whole lot more people there. And as we have documented, Hal, Winnipeg continues to shift. There was a time that in the West Broadway area now, And just look at all the new builds that are going there. Remember when Mm -hmm. Stella's was the only one there? Yeah. 
And now look at that neighborhood. So we're starting to see this happening in different neighborhoods. The North End, Selkirk Avenue, that's the toughest of the cookies. But the Mm -hmm. issue here is, do we build infrastructure to get people through and around zones, or do we invest in communities? That is the big issue pre, during, and post-COVID, is that is Winnipeg a city of neighborhoods or is it a city that you want to get through neighborhoods because you want nothing to do with those neighborhoods? And I think the one thing that COVID has given us a lot of opportunities is to think about how we live and the way we live. You had mentioned that, you know, being off, feeling isolated and not connected. There were a lot of people going through those issues right now and in some cases they're finding ways to reconnect malika kareem later today will tell us the story about community dinners at uh, physical and social say uh, uh, distancing so we're rethinking the way we live now will things go on the way they were right after COVID? in the mainstream probably but there might be things that change And one of these ideas is that maybe we kick the tires on a different approach to some of the traditional infrastructure, that if it's old and falling apart, we just build a brand new one to replace the existing, or do we think of different ways to invest our tax dollars? Well, and I would argue, and I hear you, Richard, and I think it's a good conversation to have, no question about it. I think you're going to be split right down the middle. You're going to have some people that go hell yeah and other people that go hell no. Um, uh, but you know, if they, and, and all we have to do is look at Portage and Maine, right? And the debate that that, that caused. Um, so I, it's going to be interesting, uh, to see if anything comes of this, but I think if you're going to make that move, then I think you really have to get serious about the rail yards and re- relocating the rail yards. But as you point out, that's, that's a big ask and nothing that's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And I think it's worth having the conversation about it. And interestingly enough, the one of our guests after 5.30 is one of the city councillors who is dead against having Portage in Maine open to pedestrians. But in favour of this idea. He's willing to kick the tires on it. Okay. All right, Richard, I'm looking forward to the conversation because, as I said, I have not heard this until you mentioned it in the news meeting this morning. So I'm anxious to hear uh, some of the people on the various sides of this idea. We're going to talk in just a moment to the board chair at Research Manitoba about some of the research being done here in the province into treatments and possible vaccines for COVID-19. The White House has responded now uh, to something that President Trump announced on the weekend, that he is now taking that malaria drug to try and keep COVID-19 away. Take a listen, and then we'll talk to Tracy. The FDA has said hydroxychloroquine should only be administered for COVID-19 in hospital or research settings due to potentially fatal side effects. All I can tell you is, so far, I seem to be okay. But some public health experts worry the president's setting up people to misuse hydroxychloroquine. His spokeswoman says tens of millions already use it for other purposes. The FDA's chief says the decision to take any drug is ultimately between a patient and doctor. The president has said his doctor did not recommend it, but he asked the White House physician to get it. Sagar Magani, Washington. All right, uh, Tracy McConaughey is the board chair for Research Manitoba. Tracy, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, thank you for for joining us. I, I'm this story that I just uh, gave an update on there has me wondering how the research into this drug is going here in the province of Manitoba. It's been, I guess, maybe a month or more eh, since it was announced that it was being looked at here. Tell us where we're at. Certainly. So right now, Manitoba will be hosting two uh, trials around uh, hydrochloroquine. Um, They are both um, larger studies. So some of the studies that have taken place so far have been small, say 100 people, 150 people. The trials right now that are being looked at will be larger. They'll be up to uh, 3,000 individuals that will be studied. And those studies will look at preventing it in disease, the disease in patients who've been exposed but may not have symptoms, as well as early treatment for patients who aren't in hospitals. So it's a little bit of a unique look at um, this treatment, and they are underway. You know, the, the challenge always with clinical trials is that as fast as these are happening, and they are happening at record-breaking speeds, it still takes time. Um, it also takes time to recruit patient, patients. So if patients are interested in being part of these studies, they can reach out and, uh, and sign themselves up. And are we seeing, are there even early results at this point, or do you wait until the end of the trials? Tell me how that works. So as a general rule in clinical trials, um, the information isn't shared until it's been completed and usually been reviewed by peers. That's what normal science process looks like. But because of the urgency around COVID, um, we are starting to see some data being released early in what they call preprints. So that means before it's actually been published. In this case, we're even earlier than that. We don't have the researchers, not we don't have the data yet to begin to, to communicate that. And because these numbers are larger, it will take a little bit more time to get that information. Gotcha. I figured that would be your answer, but I thought it was a good opportunity to kind of, you know, see where we're at. And and it's interesting with this drug, which is used to treat malaria and lupus. And I think the reason, and I've seen the president, Trump, talk about this and other people, I think doctors in some jurisdictions are even prescribing it to people, not for those normal uses, uh, but as a treatment uh, or a prevention of COVID-19. And the reason is, I guess, because the drug has already been approved for safe use, right? It's different than something completely brand new. Am I right about that? That's correct. You know, if we were to have, at the beginning of this epidemic, looked for a novel treatment, so a new drug, it would have would take us 8 to 10 to 12 years. That's a normal course of drug development. So what our healthcare professionals did is they said, let's look at other things that maybe have had an impact in other similar diseases or similar infections. And so they went back to try to see what might have an impact. And this was one of the medications that that came up. And as you say, it's generally known to be safe. It's effective for the diseases it's been approved in. uh, But they do not know at this point if it works in COVID. And I early on heard that this was promising, that there seemed to be some positive indications. That's when Trump was really talking about it. Then he kind of stopped talking about it. And then I started hearing reports that maybe it wasn't really all that effective. Um, where do you come down on, on this, or can you weigh in with an opinion on, on this drug and what you've, I'm sure you follow it closely, knowing that this research is happening here? Absolutely. I am not a healthcare professional. It is not for me to weigh in in terms of whether or not this is to be used. 
My rule of thumb is always looking at large scale trials like the ones that are being done here in Manitoba. As I said, 3,000 plus patients and looking at them as they've been reviewed by their peers. That's the standard. That's the gold standard that we should always be looking for when we are looking at any types of treatment. So until we get to that point with any of these interventions, I think it's best to watch and wait. If you have a specific interaction with a healthcare professional, follow their advice. But on the whole, we need more data. And what other research is happening on the COVID-19 front here in in the province? Tell us what else is being looked at. And I know for sure that was one thing that was being looked at. What else and and what can you tell us about the developments, if any? Absolutely. So uh, we are very fortunate in Manitoba. We have a a couple of different groups that are looking at vaccine and vaccine development. One of them is looking at using Um, plasma. So when we say vaccine, it's more than what we think of as our typical vaccines that we've gotten. When a vaccine really just creates a response in the body that then protects the patient if they're ever exposed to that infection. So there's a few different ways that that can be done. So we have two different sets of researchers in Manitoba looking at two different methods of ensuring that patients um, will be safe um, from covid We then have some that are looking at uh, just the epidemiology, you know, what actually is happening. How does this drug work? How is it impacting patients in in different places? We have others that are looking at the societal effects, you know, what is going to be the impact of um, this disease and all of the changes that we've gone through as a community and what has been the healthcare response. So an analysis, not just in Manitoba, but across Canada in terms of how we can do things better. Uh, You know, these clinical trials that we've talked about, I can tell you that previously it would have taken anywhere between six to 18 months to have those approved to be done. They happen in weeks. That's going to be one of the things that will be, be, be looked at. How do we um, perhaps move to a quicker standard so we can provide better care for patients in other areas? They're also going to be looking at other pre-existing treatments. Um, or, uh, heparin is one of the ones where we've got a couple of trials that are being looked at, that one read, led by Dr. Ryan Zierchanski. There seems to be additional information that's coming out that COVID has some type of impact on the body's clotting mechanism. And normally clotting is good, but too much can cause significant problems. So they are currently, and that trial just opened recently, and they're expecting about 2,000 patients all around the world who will have an opportunity uh, to determine if the blood thinners actually make a difference for patients. So that's just a sample of some of the ones that, that we're looking at. Uh, Research Manitoba actually has a, a call. It closes today um, for more research proposals, and those will be reviewed by the the standard process. And probably in six weeks or so, we'll have another set of trials or research that's being done here in Manitoba related to COVID. You know, you talked about the rushed timeline in many of these trials. Do you have a timeline as you enter into some of these trials? Do you say, yeah, we're six months out, eight months out? You know, you talked about what normal is. What's the new normal with COVID-19? Is it six, eight, ten months? How far out before we might see some results from these trials and, and maybe even drugs that get used or possibly even a vaccine, not necessarily uh, developed here, but somewhere? 
So the, the trials that are looking at existing treatments, uh, so like, as I say, like the, um, like the heparin or mm-hmm. um, the chloroquinicone, those will get results sooner. And those are probably, as I said, we'll see them in that pre-print version. So those we'll see, it depends on the number of patients, right? They have to hit those numbers in order to then stop and analyze the data. So we're talking likely months in those situations. Um, in the case of new development, we are talking a much longer time frame uh, because once they determine in theory that a medication or a vaccine works, then they need to do all the safety and efficacious tests. You know, does this actually work in a large group of patients? Because it can work in five, but when you put it on 5,000, maybe you actually don't get as many uh, positive outcomes as you want. So the development first is, does it work in principle? Then they will test it in a very small group of healthy, low-risk patients, then a larger group of healthy, low-risk patients, and then they will start to expand, and then they will get into bigger trials when we're talking about the development of a vaccine or of a medication. And those, even with this fast pace, you know, you still need time to collect that data, right? We still have to follow safety and the procedures that have, have always been set out and followed. So we're we're talking... You know, I, I think for a vaccine, they're talking 9 to 12 to 18 months, and I think those are really aggressive timelines. Tracy, before I let you go, I want to talk about, well, A, and we'll get to this in a second, the talent in this province and in this city, uh, because I've been here, uh, you know, over 30 years now, and I've met so many incredibly talented brains and and people with amazing abilities and and talent so i want to get to that in a second how and but relating to that how important is it that the virology lab is here the virology lab is is important it's a it's a foundational piece it allows um a, a level of knowledge to exist in in the province that doesn't exist otherwise. But we also are are very fortunate. You know, we have uh, Cancer Care Manitoba. We have the Health Science Centre. We have the foundation of at University of Manitoba and University of Winnipeg. We're actually developing and building really quality researchers. And they are more and more choosing to stay here in Manitoba. And we're very fortunate to have that. The work that Research Manitoba does in supporting these students when they are in graduate school, getting them to understand who they could potentially work with and the world-class research that's being done here, they don't need to leave Manitoba. All of those are part of building our strong foundation and building a really great skill set that's positioned us very well in terms of COVID. Tracy, thanks a lot for your time today, and we'll check in again. Uh, I'm really uh, anxious and excited to, to see what uh, what happens here in the province, and and thank you so much for sharing uh, the news with us, and, and we'll uh, keep close and, and keep an eye on things. Thank you. Absolutely. I'll be in touch when we have some results to share. Really look forward to it. Tracy McConaughey, she's the board chair of Research Manitoba. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.